I don't know if you guys knew this, but we are 16 days until the election. You excited? Yay, right? These next 16 days, who knows what's going to be in the news. We're obviously all on edge. In many ways, 2020 has reminded me that I'm just, I'm helpless in a lot of ways. And again, we've said this a lot, but it's almost like, uh, it's not that we have lost control. It's, it's God has, in many ways, has removed the illusion of control. And a lot of us just seem to have so much anxiety because we never recognize how helpless we truly are. One of my favorite scriptures is Matthew 11, 28 and following. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Just a, a verse later, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When you think about 2020, do you think of the words rest? Do you think of the word easy? Do you think of the word light? Probably not. And it's because I believe, talking to my spiritual director about it this week, if your burden is heavy, it's not the Lord's fault. It's ours because we are carrying something that only God can carry. Amen? So I hope that we recognize that. Really, we're in a, a critical moment in our nation where a lot of us are on edge because we are like a powder keg about to explode, right? And so we're looking for someone or something to lighten our load. And what I want to start out with tonight, before we even jump into 1 Timothy chapter 2, the more I've been thinking about and reflecting about our society and what's happening, I think there are, and I've mentioned so many different false gospels as we've been going through 1 Timothy, because a lot of this is here's the true gospel, here's the false gospel, but I'm going to mention two more worldviews, ideologies, or gospels that I think maybe even we as Christians can fall into. And I hope that us kind of recognizing it, pointing it out, helps us not fall into that error anymore. The first one that we have that we fall into, the false gospels that you see a lot, is called pathological dualism. Pathological dualism. This was actually a phrase coined by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And here's how he defines it. It's pretty insane. He says, pathological dualism is when we divide the world into the unimpeachably good and the irredeemably bad. So you'll notice in politics, a lot of times we create this world. Oh, Pastor Ray's here. What's up, Ray? I didn't see you. Good to see you, man. We, have, we create this world where on one side of the aisle, whatever it is, these people are unimpeachably good. You and I, we are unimpeachably good. We can't be impeached. We are perfect. Our side is right on every single matter in every single situation. But the other side, whatever that side is for you, is irredeemably bad. They are just dumb. Okay, how do they get to those conclusions? They are wrong every step of the way. And the worst part about it, what this gospel believes is this side. The bad side is beyond saving. We love that because if with, with pathological dualism, the blame is not on us. The blame is completely on them. It gives us a false sense of comfort. It gives us, at least temporarily, we think that the load has been taken off our shoulders. But the reality is my gospel, first of all, says... There is no side that's perfect, amen? Just Jesus alone is perfect. You and I can be impeached, okay? But then there's also the other side. I believe my scriptures say that if you have breath in your lungs, God has a plan for your life. He desires for you to be saved and come back to the loving arms of God. This is the gospel we believe and we preach. This is difficult to believe that in today's modern politics. So that's the first one. I hope you imagine that. Maybe even do some self-reflection in my participating in pathological dualism. The second one that I think we kind of fall into a lot here in Arizona is apathetical deism. 
Something um, a lot of my friends I talk to in different uh, states, uh, they are surprised how much in Arizona we just deal with apathy here. I don't know what it is. Arizona has weird culture. Like if somebody RSVPs, like we had a wedding last night, Casey and Nathan from our church got married. It was beautiful. It was fantastic. And But the sad thing is, like I just know this, like with RSVPs in Arizona, it doesn't mean anything. Like you still might not come. It's like five minutes before, maybe I'll go, maybe I won't. I don't know. It's a weird Arizona thing. But anyways, what it is is apathy. Just kind of like, uh, I don't just seem to care that much at all. And with these issues today, I know for me, sometimes it's tempting for me to get apathetical. You know, is this really going to change? Can I make a difference? Deism is a worldview about God that believes, okay, God created this world. That itself is a miracle, but now he's no longer involved. And the way that we operate, the way that we are actually lacking in prayer shows that some of us have kind of fallen into the false gospel of apathetical deism. This worldview says, if God doesn't care, why should I? Right? If God is not involved in trying to bring change, why should I try to get involved to bring change? In fact, this worldview says God doesn't really care for my prayers, so I'm not going to pray for it. So we just sit and close, close our eyes and wait for 2021, somehow assuming that that will get better. But there's, again, no guarantee of that. Amen? So here's the two false gospels. Pathological dualism. Those are the fun people on Facebook. You know them, right? They post something every day. They're always angry, right? Apathetical deism. We're just annoyed with everybody, but do nothing, okay? What we have is a better alternative with the power of the gospel. And I really think 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, I just think it's such a good word for us in this moment. Here's the title for today's message. Called to care, not to carry. I believe what we're going to see in this passage this morning, I'm sorry, this evening, I've gotten so good at saying evening and then I preach this morning. God, all right? I am so grateful for each of you who come on Sunday nights. I know for so many of you it's not a normal rhythm, but you're making it that. Let me just say it doesn't go unnoticed. We're so grateful for you. And some of you are like, dude, we just love sleeping in. So it's like not even a sacrifice. So I got you. You're welcome. Enjoy that weekend, guys. We're here for you when it's over. All right? But let me pray, and then we'll get reading into the scriptures. Father, we're so grateful for you and your grace and your love. I just ask you, God, as we look at these four verses... Pray, Lord, it really saturate our minds. I pray that it would fill our hearts with your truth, with your ways. God, I pray that we'd approach this text being teachable. May we understand, Holy Spirit, that you have a word for each and every one of us. And may we take so much comfort that your word never returns void or empty. You always fulfill your purposes. I pray, God, that we would be willing to partake in that purpose. And Jesus and I pray, everybody says... Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Again, at this time in Paul's ministry, he's writing to a young pastor, and Paul is nearing the end of his life. So Paul has been through a lot of pain. Paul has been through a lot of suffering. He's also been through a lot of abundance. He's been through a lot of joy. He's seen a lot of miracles, right? And so he is talking to Timothy, and young Timothy thinks that nobody has gone through the problems he's going through. I think for us, we tend to think nobody has dealt with like a pandemic like we have. It happened 100 years ago, right? Like we just tend to think we are the only ones. And so what's kind of neat about this letter, it's as almost as if we had somebody today that lived through 2020 20 years ago. Wouldn't that be so great? What do we do? And they just tell us, yeah, that way's dumb. Don't do that. Do, that would be great. We would just be waiting. How do we do this? So you've already lived through this before. Sadly, that nobody's really lived through this. Um, but again, God will take care of us. But I want us to look at it that way. Paul is giving so much wisdom to young Timothy saying, I've been there. Let me encourage you. Let's look at verse 1. 
First Timothy chapter two. It says, first of all, then I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for the ones that you like. No, right? Be made for some people. No, be made for everyone. Don't you hate when the Bible does that to you, right? They make it so clear, like, but what about, yes, everyone, all right? Made for everyone. Next verse. For kings, modern day, we'd say presidents, right? And all those who are in authority, all these government leaders, also like your pastor, but whatever, so that we may lead a tranquil, underline, tranquil and quiet life in all, underline, godliness and dignity. That's going to be the bread and butter of tonight. Verse 3. This is good. I love when they say that, like, this is really good. Tweet what I just said. That was great, right? This is good, and it pleases God our Savior. I want to do what pleases God, amen? This is what pleases God our Savior. Next verse. Who wants some people, no? Everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What I want to do tonight is I believe there's a lot of exhortations here, but I'm going to pick three exhortations based off of this passage that I think is very helpful for our current time and our current moment. And I hope it gives you encouragement, and I hope it actually kind of may, maybe it gets a little difficult for us, but I think the Holy Spirit will carry us. Here's point number one. Write this down. This is to the church. Look, you are not called to carry the world, but you are called to care for the world. This is imperative for us to know the difference between carrying a burden and caring for burdens. A lot of us in today's, and understandably so, we are very anxious with everything going on. And I think it's because we as Christians have begun to assume that our job is to carry the world. No, no, no. We are called to care for the world. I love how Paul, in verse 1, he says four different ways to pray. He says, I urge petitions, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving. We're going to talk about those in just a few moments, how to define those. But I think it's interesting that he really makes sure he doesn't just say pray for everybody, or he doesn't even just say pray. He says pray these four ways and for everyone, just to make sure this is abundantly clear so you have no excuse. I think it were left up to us. Paul would tell Timothy, first of all, then I urge that panicking scapegoating, blaming, and speculations be made for everyone. That would be a lot easier to apply, right? Instead, he says petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. Here's the biggest thing I think we need to recognize. I think a lot of us have confused panicking as praying. He's saying to pray for everybody, bring these things to the Father, but I think some of us have gotten so good at panicking over everything that's happening in the world, and we count that as prayer. We count that. We're just such good saints. We just turn on the news every day and freak out all day, and God, I love you. I'm such a good person for watching this and stressing myself out. I actually think if we look at this, there is a better alternative for us. Listen, freaking out about the world is not a form of prayer. It's a form of terror, Okay. So there is a difference there, and it's helpful for us to know that. It's helpful for us to, when we're living a panicking life. A panicking life is not a praying life. There is something different. So, so I, I um, am trying to learn a lot more about counseling. Obviously, 2020 has brought a lot our way, and so I'm like, I'm trying to be as best pastor as I can be. And so I've always joked that I'm a terrible counselor, but I want to try to get better. So I've been reading a lot of books, and there's three questions that every counselor, generally, they ask these questions in different ways. And I've been trying to apply this in my life, and I think it'll be helpful for you and for me. There are three questions. 
questions that I think will transform your prayer life. Three questions that will help transform the way that you figure out what to pray for and how to pray. Here's question number one. Again, counselors kind of know this. Number one, you must ask yourself when you're panicking, what is mine to carry? When you're in a situation, you're wondering, what is the solution? You're stressing out, you're panicking, which a lot of us are panicking today. Anybody else? No, just me? Okay, whatever, right? What is mine to carry? We in the Christian faith, we have to recognize there are some things we are required to carry. One of my favorite prayers is, Lord, give me patience quickly, right? thinking it's God's job. He's the one who's supposed to give me all the patience. The reality is you and I know you don't pray for patience because then God gives you situations where you have to be patient, right? Right? What is mine to carry? Some of us are so stressed out, but we refuse to think about our habits. What are we watching? How much are we consuming, right? What is mine to carry in this situation? If there is an issue, what can I do first? Of course, that is bathed in prayer, but other times it's bathed in action. We're actually supposed to do something. Right? This is the second question. I think it's so helpful. What is theirs to carry? If you're freaking out about your neighbor or for us, our children, for us, we're constantly thinking, okay, what is, me and my wife always say, is that our fault or is that just their fault? You know what I'm saying? Like when they just do something just totally dumb. It's like, okay, was that on us or are they just humans, right? And so we're constantly trying to figure that out. And so it's really helpful for us. We need to, as parents, as pastors, as Christians, it is imperative that we do not overfunction. In other words, there are some problems that people have that they have to take care of. It is not your job to do what they are supposed to do. Something that's very popular today is to encourage victims, right? To have a victim mentality. The problem with the victim mentality is it's nice because you kind of feel like the hero for a while. Everybody loves a victim because they look to you as their hero. You wind up doing over-functioning, doing more and more for them, but you recognize they never actually change. They never actually bring forth transformation because they're so used to you doing everything for them. This could be a parenting situation. Even parents, if you're 80 years old, some of you still are over-functioning for your 50-year-old kid, right? This happens all the time. And here's the scary thing that I've noticed in my years and years of ministry, all right? Victims eventually make you the oppressor. Even if you're there to care for them and love them, they will find a way to then blame you for the situation that they're in. There's something healthy here to recognize, okay, that is theirs to carry. I'm not gonna stress out over that. They gotta figure that out. Friends, it's your job to vote, but at the end of the day, it's your neighbor's job for him to vote. You can't vote for your neighbor. You know what I'm saying? There are certain things they're called to carry, and let me just say, it's so freeing to recognize that truth. Here's the third question is, what is God's to carry? So again, when you are stressed out, panicking, think about a situation and write it down in columns. What is mine to carry in this situation? What is theirs to carry if there's a third party involved? And what is God's to carry? And the reality is there are some things we simply, no matter what we do, we're just saying, God, if you don't show up, if you don't miraculously save us, there is no saving. An easy example is the Middle East. I don't know about you, but I can't really change the outcomes of what's happening in the Middle East for peace and all that. But what I can do is to pray and ask for peace and for ask God's will to be done. And that is the only job I can do at this current time, right? There are certain things in our lives where we just have to pray. A lot of times the salvation of a loved one. You've done everything you're called to do. At the end of the day, we're asking God to do what only he can do. And that gives us confidence and that helps us. 
You see that? Amen? Yes? All right. Those are three questions. Ask yourself those questions when you're panicking. All right? And um, I heard we've been doing that a lot this year. All right. Now, here are the four words Paul says. So when we are thinking about those three phrases, now we have to think through those questions. Think, how do we pray for each situation? Well, Paul gives it to us. There's four words, petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. Number one is petition. What does that mean? A petition is a sense of desperation. In the biblical text, in the Greek word, it means to be desperate. So Paul is saying, take that desperation. Have you felt that this year? Anybody, huh? Right? Take that sense of desperation, and instead of drowning it with distraction, which we have plenty of today, bring it before the Father in desperation. God loves a desperate prayer. Because he knows that we know, God, only you can do this. We're asking you. We're petitioning for you to come through. The second form of prayer is prayer. What is prayer? Again, this word, um, it, when you see this reference in different parts of Scripture, what it really is referencing is a specific purpose with intentionality. In other words, a lot of times when it says this word prayer, it's actually referencing somebody getting on their knees and praying. It's a posture. It is a schedule. So what I would encourage you to do in the coming days, in 16, 17 days, you know, like the next 16 days, no reason why I say that number, but you know what I'm saying? For those days, schedule some time in your life where you just simply pray. For me, every morning I wake up at 5, see my wife's beautiful face. She doesn't need makeup. She's the best, huh? All right. Then, trying to get points. You know, you got to get them where you can. So then, you, I read my scriptures, I read a devotional, and I go for a run. And during that run, I get to pray. I get to talk to God out loud. Hopefully nobody hears me, right? And I just express. To me, I have to have that daily rhythm out where it's nice out when I'm on a run out on the dirt path and just talking to God. I encourage you, friends, figure out in these next coming days, weeks, months, and years, pick a place, stay consistent, see what God can do. The third way we pray is intercession. What does that mean? It simply means to pray on others' behalf. So it's partnering with God and saying, God, I know that you want this person to get saved, or you know, I know you want this person to get healed, and so we're asking you, God, to do what only you can do. Here's the fourth one is Thanksgiving. Now, this one, um, by the way, I can't wait for Thanksgiving. Amen? Like, ugh, we're going to have Viking feasts. It's going to be incredible. But here's the definition for Thanksgiving. It's being grateful to God for man. Notice that in verse 1, it says, Thanksgiving be made for everyone. This is pretty incredible. So what we're called to do is to even, we're called to pray for our enemies. So get this, as Christians... We're called to pray, to petition, to be an intercession for our enemies, for those we disagree with. But along those ways, I don't know who has done this, right? We're actually called to think and contemplate ways we can be thankful that that person is living here on earth. Think of that political figure that you can't stand, right? Now, figure out how you can talk to God and say, God, I thank you for that person's life. This is why Christianity is the only one that's going to figure this thing out. Because our worldview makes us not only pray for our enemies, but love our enemies. This is good stuff. Because when we pray, we always assume the only thing we're doing is praying for their heart to change. But Paul knows, but God knows, listen, you're going to give thanks for them. Because you think you're changing their heart. Meanwhile, God is changing your own. This is the power of prayer. We must give thanks. Pathological dualism cannot imagine giving thanks for the irredeemably bad side. Apathetical deism cannot imagine praying for anything because they're just simply too lazy. 
If 2020 doesn't make us, Passion Creek Church, a praying people, I don't know what will. I just really desire for us to be a powerful group of praying people. Richard Foster, I've been mentioning him a lot the last couple weeks. Um, Such a great book called Streams of Living Water. Pretty big. Just read his book, Prayer. But he has this really good quote on prayer in the Streams of Living Water book. Here's the quote. I love it. God, you see, will not enter many areas of our life uninvited. Right? So we invite God to enter every experience of life. We invite God to animate our preaching and our singing and our praying. We invite God, look, to heal our bodies. We invite God to touch broken relationships and resolve conflicts at work or home. Perhaps we can speak of this as invited grace. The grace of God coming in loving response to our invocation. How are we inviting God into this situation? I love that. We serve a God who in many areas of our life will not enter uninvited. May we be an invited people. I want you to think through this. Are you praying for the world or are you just panicking for the world and labeling it prayer? Are you trying to carry the world or are you caring for the world? Listen, you are not called to carry the world, but... You are called to care for the world. Let's look at verse 2. Verse 2, it says, For kings and all of those who are in authority, so that we may uh, lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So what this verse is saying, we have to pray for everybody in authority. And the reality is, you're supposed to love this verse even in 17 days from now versus today, right? It doesn't matter who got elected. We're still called to pray and petition and care for our president. I remember um, one of the first sermons I had when I was a kid, I was preaching. I can't believe how, like, I can't believe my dad let me preach when I was like 17. It was crazy. It was was terrible. But I would preach one time. I was preaching on um, praying for the government and everything. And so I remember a guy, I just remember explicitly, a guy came up to me after and he said, Trey, great sermon, but listen, I know you said to pray for our, our president. But, but the Apostle Paul didn't know how bad Obama was. And I was like, okay, hold on. Um, Nero was the one in authority when Paul gave this command. Did you know, friend, that literally Nero hung Christians upside down, lit them on fire to provide light for the citizens in Rome? I think Obama's okay, right? It was insane. And he was dead serious, and he is not among us tonight. Amen? Praise God. Oh, gosh. But I love him, and I'm thankful for him. And I'm going to pray for him tonight because I just made that terrible joke. Okay, so, friends, we can pray for everyone, every leader, no matter who gets elected. We need to make it a daily habit to pray for our executive branch. Did you know there's two other branches, (laughs) right? The legislative branch, and I know there's at least 10 in here that never, because I mean, I've seen the statistics, right? They're like, I don't know. We had terrible government teachers, I suppose, or we just weren't listening because we're living the high school life, or, and the judicial branch. We need to pray for all of those. I'm thankful that the founding fathers thought about all three, right, to kind of give some checks and balances. Write this down. This is so important. I think it's really helpful for us as a church to recognize the government's role. Look, the government is not called to carry the church, but they are called to care for the church. This is a very, very important distinction for us to make. When we're talking about praying for those in authority, we have to have the right attitude. What are we praying for? What are we hoping they provide for us? 
Again, it says, uh, for kings and all those who are in authority, verse 2, so that, so here's why. Why are we doing all this? So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life. Let's just stop there. Tranquil and quiet life. Warren Wearsby, one of my favorite commentators. If you ever like go to a, a garage sale and you see a Warren Wearsby commentary, buy it. And if you don't like it, just give it to me. He's the man, all right? You think I like rhyming and alliterating? That guy's got it, all right? So here's the quote he says about um, defining those terms. Quiet, a quiet life refers to circumstances around us. So what we're called to do is when we're praying for the government, we're praying that, that God enables the government to give us the ability to have the best circumstance possible for the church in order to be the church. We're praying for positive outcomes. We're hoping that things are on the up and up. While peaceful, or in our translation is tranquil, refers to a calm attitude within us. In reality, that tranquility is a peace that passes understanding. It's actually not determined on circumstance. So we're praying for that. But at the end of the day, no matter what the government does, you and I can still have tranquil hearts. Amen? We can still have a heart of peace. The results should be lives that are God and honorable. In other words, what we need to be doing is to really think through this election and just government in general and pray for the best circumstances, but don't rely on them. The government's not called to carry the church, but they are called to care for the church. Here might be the best way to put it. The government's job is not to give the church victory. It is to give the church liberty. We're the ones on the front lines fighting the good fight for the sake of every person, every soul. The government, that's not their job. That's the church. And I think the way we've been panicking and getting so consumed in this election and thinking if this doesn't go a certain way, all hell is going to break loose. I think it shows we have been relying too much on what the government is supposed to do versus what the church is supposed to do. I already know what I'm going to preach the week after the election. And it doesn't matter who gets elected, right? I know we have a job to do as a church, and it's not predicated on the results. We as the church for too long have sat on the sidelines demanding the government to do what God ordained for us to do. Let me give you an easy example. I gave this example this morning in uh, the first service. I had a man come up to me after and say, don't preach about that on the second service. I said, well, whatever, I'm still gonna do it. And so now I'm gonna do it again, just to really rub it in, all right? Okay, whatever. All right, and so um, he told me, uh, yeah, he said not to do it, whatever, I'm moving on. Here is one example I think that really works when understanding the government's role versus the church's role. And that's the topic of abortion. I could pick a million things, but the abortion, let's just roll with that for a little bit. The reality is, no matter what, I'm praying that we eventually overturn Roe versus Wade. But no matter what, it's still the church's job to take care of that problem. No matter what we deal with with the legal side, which I think the legal side is important. Don't, don't hear me wrong. Here's a couple things the church needs to do. We need to, first of all, care for those who have had an abortion. We need to offer care and love and grace. And I just, I, I just hate how, again, slogans are broken. We mentioned the slogan about how we're here for the unborn, which we absolutely are. But we're also here for those who did commit abortion and no longer have their child, right? We're here to love them and extend grace to them and to give them a community and restoration. Friends, we've all done things that we regret and we don't, you know, so there is a God of forgiveness there. So we need to make a big deal about that. But the other thing we have to recognize is the reason a lot of ladies are put into that position is because they don't have community. They don't have a purpose. They don't understand their God-ordained design and what they're called to do. And so they run and put themselves in 
harmful situations, right? They're put in situations where they know they can't take care of a baby because nobody takes care of them, right? And so we as the church, no matter what the law, what they say, we as the church are the ones that say, look, we change communities because we change hearts. The gospel changes people from the inside out and we change society. It's up to us to provide the loving grace for those who have done it and also to provide a place where they know they don't have to, amen? We are called to do that. It's not, we're not sitting here waiting and hoping that a Supreme Court justice goes in, which I'm very hopeful for with the current one happening. I think it will. Uh, I think it's a for sure thing. I don't know. I don't know enough. But, but that's what I'm praying for. But at the end of the day, it's still the church's job to do what, the, what, what we are called to do. Amen? Anybody want to leave yet? That's fine. Whatever. Okay, now. There are two ways that the government can hurt the church. And so when we pray for the government, I think it's really helpful for us to recognize these two temptations and to pray against it. Number one is perversion. Perversion can happen, right? The darkest times in our history as a church was when we allowed the government to operate within the church. I actually think when the founding fathers talked about separation of church and state, they were more concerned about the government getting their hands in the church versus the church getting their hands in the government. I think it was more because they saw what happened when a government takes over a church's agenda and hijacks it and people follow it because they think it's in the name of Jesus, even though it's really in the name of their own empire. Every time I share the gospel, there are always people to bring up, but yeah, your gospel had holy wars, right? We have to talk about that scary, that dark past of ours, right? So it's really, we have to be very careful here. We're praying that there actually is the separation because we have our own agenda and that's to change the world through the blood, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. The government doesn't have that agenda and so we're different. We cannot let, we cannot negotiate like the Sadducees did in the name of power and give up some of our doctrine in order for them to give us some things, right? We gotta pray against perversion, but the second thing we need to pray for against is persecution. This is a thing we have to really think about when we vote and when we think through what's happening in the coming days. Look, the saddest times in our history as a church was when the government used their power to injure and kill followers of the way. I saw this stat, I think in like 2014, um, I should have checked it this afternoon, but essentially it said this year alone, more people have died for their faith than every other year combined. There's persecution happening now more than ever. Part of that is because we just know how to populate these days, right? There's just a lot of people on this planet, but it's a really, really sad reality that people are actually be killing for their faith. So let me just say this, because your Facebook post didn't get as much likes, that does not mean you're persecuted. Amen. You just might need to get better at making photos. I don't know, right? There is like, maybe you're getting suppressed. There's other words to use, but there are literally brothers and sisters throughout the world who are literally dying for their faith and they see us crying about nobody likes me anymore, right? We need to have a more nuanced discussion on what persecution is, but we do need to be weary of it. We do need to pray against it for the sake of our children, right? So we need to pray against those things. But look, the government is not called to carry the church. When we expect it to carry the church, perversion and persecution begin to arise. But they are called to care for the church. And I believe that God will hold our leaders accountable for how they love and serve the church, for the church to do their job. Now, here's the, the last part of that verse. I think it's really helpful. Uh, tranquil and quiet life. Look, in all godliness and dignity. I don't know if you knew this, but the government is not in charge of your godliness. The government is not in charge of your dignity. Right? That is, I love my Bible, talks about how we can become like Christ no matter the circumstance. Right? In Philippians, it talks about in abundance or in need. It is Christ alone who strengthens me. I was on a run yesterday. 
I've been thinking about that a lot. And let me just say, as your pastor, and, me, and Caleb, as, as your pastor as well, can really attest to this, our greatest desire is to do as much as possible, the part we're supposed to carry, in helping you pursue a life of godliness and dignity. That really is a great way to summarize what we're here to do. We're not here to just entertain. We're not here just to make you feel better for 24 hours, right? We truly are trying to instill the character of Christ. We're really trying to do as much as possible, not just me and Caleb, our whole team, our staff, our servants. That's what we're here to do. So I've been really processing and thinking, what does it look like to be godly and dignified in this time? And, and something I wrote down, and maybe it's a blessing to you, I know it was for me, it says, a sign of godliness and dignity is recognizing that pain and death are not the enemy. The fear of pain and death is. Let me say it one more time. A sign of godliness and dignity, that God is really working in your heart, and you're beginning to display these attributes, is recognizing that pain and death are not the enemy. The fear of pain and death is. So many of us were reacting about what's happening in politics, not because of the actual pain and death, but because of our fear of it. We're making it bigger than what it really is. But Jesus overcame the grave. He went through pain and suffering in our place. This is the truth and the hope of the gospel. So I hope in the coming weeks we kind of lay that before the Father. If, am I really experiencing pain and death or am I just afraid of it? And God, let me lay that at your feet. Let's, uh, the last verse and, and we'll conclude. Verse 3, it says, This is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. When you write this down, God the Father chose to care for the world by sending his Son to carry the world. God the Father chose to care for the world by sending his son to carry the world. See, in this verse, who wants everyone to be saved? We have pathological dualism makes a way to ignore this everyone. Pathological dualism wants to say, okay, you can be saved if as long as you're on this side, you're the unimpeachably good, but not if you're the irredeemably bad. The apathetical dual, uh, deist says, you know, as long as I'm saved, I'll be okay. But the gospel says we want everyone to be saved. Perhaps we don't participate in pathological dualism or apathetical deism, but what we do participate in is Christological duism. We believe in Christ and we are active in presenting this gospel to everyone we know. This is the answer. This is the hope that we have. And friends, I don't know the government's plan for the world. I haven't watched enough of those conspiracy theory videos, right? I don't know what the overall plot is, but I do know what God's plan is. And I'm pumped about it. And we as the church are called to carry out those purposes that God has already put in place. Here is the gospel. Here is what God has done for us. In the beginning, in Genesis 1, we learn that God created us to walk in love and to work with purpose. Again, we said this last week, Eden wasn't even perfect, but it had potential. God created it to where we can build something amazing with him. He could have done it on his own, but he decided to invite us along the journey. But as you know, we rebelled. Adam and Eve, and you and I as well, we rebelled against God to pursue our own loves, to contrive our own purposes, to be our own gods, and as a result, we're deeply broken. There is heartache every step of the way. There are so many different relational issues that we have, both with God and with man and even with creation. And Ephesians 2 talks about how it's actually so bad that it's beyond human repair. 
So a lot of us, to make us feel comfortable, we participate in dualism or deism. We try to distract ourselves because we know there really is no answer. It's hard to carry this burden on our own. But thankfully, the Father chose to care for the world by sending his Son to carry the world. What Jesus did is Jesus left heaven to serve you and to serve me. What I love when he lived his life here on earth, it wasn't just to uh, give us a plan to bring us to heaven, but it was also a way to live life where we can bring heaven down to earth. It was a beautiful, compelling vision. He lived a perfect life, and then when he died, he died the death that you and I deserve to die, carrying the weight of our sin, our own shoulders. Instead, Jesus took all of our weight and put it on his. And Jesus rose again in victory. Friends, Christ can and will carry all your sin. You have to let him. Christ can and will carry all your pain, but you have to let him. Christ can and will carry all of your sorrows, but you have to let him. My spiritual director told me that on the phone this week. He said, Trey, we're just simply not strong enough to manage all of our wounds and to manage all of our sins. This truth is powerful, that God cared for us by sending his son to carry us. This truth is powerful, but it, mu- it isn't powerful until it gets personal. You and I have to believe it and receive it ourselves. So the question is, and I'm done, do you have the humility to be carried? Do you have the humility to allow God to say, okay, you know what, God? I can't carry this on my own. I surrender. Will you carry me? There was a little boy... <clears throat> heard a pastor tell a story once about this little boy who was given a, a terminal uh, diagnosis. He only had a few months to live, and so obviously the mother was devastated, and so she resolved to spend every waking moment with him. And so she's trying to figure out creative ways to really spend their time together, and so uh, he really loves books. And so she began to read him as many books as possible, and, and one book that they read was The Tale of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And there's a section in there where it's all about this last glorious battle where there's many knights who confronted and met their death in glory. So the son looked at his mom and, and said, Mama, what, what is it like to die? Does it hurt? So obviously the mother was just distraught, was hurt, and so she ran to the kitchen to act busy. She got herself together, was asking, Lord, would you please just give me the wisdom to say what I, what I need to say? So she came back into the room, and the Spirit empowered her to, to bring her son and say, okay, son, you know when you were little and you would just go running everywhere. You had so much fun playing with all your friends and you got so tired. By the time you came home, you couldn't even make it to your room. We saw you, we saw you asleep on the floor, you were asleep on the couch, right? But every morning when you woke up, you were in your room. Do you know how that happened, son? Because your father loved you and carried you to the place you belonged. It didn't matter where you were, God took, I mean God, the Father, your Father took you to where you need to be. So the mother said, that is death with God. It doesn't matter where we're at, we fall, but the Father is loving and caring enough to carry us to the place that you and I belong when we believe in Jesus. Friends, your political party will drop you. Your 401k will drop you. Your achievements will drop you. Your fame will drop you. Your anger will drop you. But the person and work of Jesus never will. Here's Psalm 28. I think it's so good, and I'm done. 
Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the sound of my pleading. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart celebrates and I give thanks to him with my song. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is a stronghold of salvation for his anointed. But look at verse 9. It's so good. I think David's like looking up at God now. He's saying, God, save your people. Bless your possession. And you and I, we are actually his possession. God is mine and I am God's. Look, shepherd them and carry them forever. Friends, when we surrender to the goodness of God, he will carry us. And when we surrender to him, he will pick us up. He will carry us through 2020. He will carry us through every rest of the day of our life. And guess what? He will never, ever, ever, ever drop you. He is a good God. And this is the hope of the gospel that no other hope can give. Will you surrender to him today?